0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies. I am your host, Alejandro Ponce de Leon from the University of California, Davis. We're joined today by Dr. Andrea Ballesteros, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Director of the Ethnography Studio at Rice University. We will be talking about her book, A Future History of Water, published by Duke University Press in 2019. In A Future History of Water, Andrea looks at the unexpected ethical and technical entanglements through which experts understand water. Following regulators, policymakers, and NGO experts across governance and regulatory spaces, both in Costa Rica and Brazil, the book asks how the difference between a human right and a commodity is produced. In this way, the book poses profound questions about the foundations of liberal capitalist societies while also attending to the ways its nonlinear and generative futures are being produced. Welcome, Andrea, to New Books in Environmental Studies.
1: Hello, Alejandro. It's really great to be here, and I look forward to our conversation.
0: Andrea, you are a lawyer by profession uh, who specializes in environmental law. At what point in your trajectory did water become a matter of concern to you?
1: So I am originally from Costa Rica, and when i uh, after I finished uh, college, I started uh, working with different uh, environmental NGOs in Costa Rica I was particularly focused on Issues of biodiversity conservation and community organizing as a volunteer, and during that work, I was uh, in in very close relationship with the environment ministry, trying to figure out how is it that older notions of biodiversity conservation that had a preservationist style could be transformed by opening up um, protected areas to the communities living. Um, around those areas. After many years of doing that work, uh, I decided that I wanted to go back to school. And to do so, I applied uh, to get a scholarship to come to the United States. Uh, And with a Fulbright scholarship, I ended up going to the University of Michigan where I worked under Professor Maria Carmen Lemos, who at the time was doing work on water issues in northeast Brazil, in Serra. So as a, as a young person, I was posed uh, the option of continuing my work on biodiversity conservation in Costa Rica, or, or alternatively, uh, working in this project that Professor Lemos had been developing for a while in the state of Serra. And at that point, I decided it was, it was an amazing opportunity to sort of expand my, my vision. And that was in part what I was hoping I would do by coming back to school after many years of, of professional uh, life. And so I decided to go to Brazil to study how water institutions had changed in the late 1990s um, with the purpose of incorporating participatory models in the management of water. And when I, as I was preparing for that project, and when I got to, to Ceará, I found a radically different environment from the one that I was used to in Costa Rica. Ceará is a semi arid region with serious uh, scarcity problems and a political and economic history that is very, very different from that of Costa Rica. And I was completely taken by how, through water, Uh, radically different forms of sociality uh, were crystallized in these two uh, sites, the the country that I was from and Ceara in northeast Brazil. So this was something more than just water acquiring different meanings or showing different meanings, but it was uh, confronting or making sense of the ways in which different waters create different worlds, social and environmental, uh, different histories of political hierarchy. For instance, in Sierra, water has been had been used for a long time as a token of uh, for political exchange. Uh, the bodily relations that people have to water in in Ceara are very different from those in Costa Rica. One of the most beautiful moments that I remember uh, at that point was uh, seeing the joy and the celebration that erupted when rain came down in the brazilian sertão, which is the the hinterlands uh, in the semi-arid area of of brazil versus the quotidianity and the familiarity with which people in costa rica connected to rain and the sound of rain uh, in that country so the economic histories and structures uh built around water when water is a plentiful resource or substance, I should say, versus those when water is a substance that shows up in limited form across the landscape. So all of this was completely eye-opening for me, and in in a way, it literally changed my own sense of of, um, how we inhabit this world uh, in a very embodied and intimate kind of way. And so at that moment I became completely taken uh, both emotionally, but also intellectually about the ways in which thinking with and through and living with and through water uh, reveal all of these amazing variation in the ways in which humans and non-humans occupy this world. So since then I've been looking at, at the, at this issue and, um, and also doing so in a way that does not take for granted the materiality of water, but extending the question of what water is and how water is beyond these specific sites where we find the substance and trying to think about how the very materiality of water uh, and of our relations with it and of the relations between non-humans with it is uh, produced and shaped in locations where we don't find water itself, such as um, Congress or such as the technical decisions that people make in relation to pricing or a variety of issues where you don't see water itself and yet water is at stake. So that's how I ended up being completely taken by the um, political and intellectual possibilities that open up when we think our world's through water.
0: political and environmental struggles over water are taking place all across the Americas. What makes Brazil and Costa Rica unique places for this kind of research?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. So there are many ways to answer that question. Well, one one answer is that all places are unique and there's a way in which... I could have asked similar questions elsewhere, definitely, but I would have found different answers. Uh, so this question of uniqueness is one that that I I, I find really fascinating to think about uh, in terms of what what is it that the unique accounts for in our thinking and whether we pursue it or or whether there's a different logic uh, in that, that is activated when you select a site uh, to ask a question in the particular case of costa rica and brazil the context of of the history of water is is very rich in the sense that there have been a number of fairly clear political and economic phases that have unfolded that were crucial for the questions that i was asking so as you all know in the 1990s Latin America, just like other uh, regions of the world, like Asia or Africa, um, went through a diverse set of programs of structural adjustment and what we today call the neoliberalization of the economy. And so in Latin America, this translated into the privatization of many water utilities and many other uh, state-owned enterprises. In Costa Rica, this did not happen in the sense that there was no aggressive, if you want to put it that way, privatization wave. Nevertheless, uh, the threat of privatization was always present among social movements, NGOs, um, and, and political parties that are more to the left. So the conversation about privatization was one that was unfolding in relation to water in the 1990s in in Costa Rica, as as was the case in Brazil. Then, after the 90s, came the era of public-private partnerships. And these were um, experimented, uh, or to say it differently, the experiments of public-private partnerships were mostly associated with utilities. And here, water is a key one. In CERA, for example, uh, in this era, public-private companies were created to manage bulk water, just one company, I should say. Uh, But interestingly, as I started learning more about what was going on there, despite its hybrid legal character as a public-private enterprise, the people that worked in this this organization saw themselves clearly as public servants, as individuals working to carry on the mission of the state, whatever the content of that mission was at the moment. And in the case of Ceará, the question of water because of its the history of the of the state, it's crucial. Water is scarce. So the government and the state have always played a prominent role in distributing water uh, more or less democratically. Uh, at the beginning of the twentieth 20th, 20th century and throughout the 20th century, in a less democratic way, with a lot of people lacking access, and towards the end of the 20th century, trying to put forward this new program of providing access to the citizens of of the state of Sierra. But in parallel to these institutional developments, the moment of privatization and the moment of public-private partnerships, there were a good number of communities and NGOs that had been mobilizing uh, to move the discussion about water towards its formal recognition as a human right. These mobilizations were happening at the national level, Uh, but also at the international level. So we had these these, uh, activists and uh, experts reaching towards governments to push uh, government agencies into the idea of a human right to water, uh, as well as uh, UN agencies, uh, the UN General Assembly, but also spaces such as the World Bank, World Water Forum, and WTO. So you see that there's this Uh, parallel mobilization at the national and international level. At the time that I started doing this research, around 2005, Costa Rica and Brazil were two countries that in, in the region had not embraced the possibility of a constitutional reform or a national law explicitly recognizing the human right to water. There were other countries that from 2005 onwards were able to pass legal reforms in this regard, uh, but Costa Rica and Brazil were not amongst those. But what is really interesting is that despite the lack of a formal uh, adoption or recognition of of the human right to water in the text of the law, both countries had incorporated, either through jurisprudence or through technical dissemination of knowledge, the idea of a human right. So for me, it was a really interesting uh, contradiction or paradox, the fact that these two places were on the one hand making interesting experiments towards uh, democratizing and expanding access uh, to water. And at the same time, were were, we're behind, if you want to use that language, in terms of formal reforms. And so that created... The question of what what is happening and how is it that this uh, group of people that are mobilized and are so actively engaged uh, are dealing with this context of not having the formal recognition. Uh, And that created a sense of a constant struggle for them. Uh, And I became very interested in how they lived that struggle, how they embraced the urgency of pushing forward their projects, and recognizing the idea of a human right to water um, at the same time that they uh, saw others around them in the region uh, move much faster and much more quickly than they were doing. And so in attending to that work and learning how they navigated uh, this conflicting uh, set of, of circumstances, I arrived to the idea of identifying the particular junctures in which they were creating this political and legal difference that is really meaningful, the difference between water access as a human right versus water access as a commodity. And so it is, on the one hand, the contextual forces from privatization to public-private partnerships, and on the other hand, the currents of mobilization that were... uh, active nationally, but also internationally around this idea of the recognition of water as a human right.
0: So as you have been mentioning, one of the central points of contention within water politics across Latin America has to do with its definition, either as a commodity or as a right, which is where you're taking us in the book. Specifically, the book explores how experts imagine, think, and create these distinctions. Could you tell us more about the kind of work your interlocutors were performing uh, as they tried to separate these two notions that actually resist separation?
1: Yes. Um, As I conducted this work, I became very, very interested in thinking carefully about uh, what I imagine or what I conceptualize, a unique group of people. And those people are individuals whose professional job is to think about the form of the social and to think about the intersection of the social with the environmental. In other words, these are people whose daily obligations uh, consist of thinking about the shape of society and its intimate intertwining with something that we might call nature or the environment. So many of us get up, Every day, preoccupied with the worlds that we inhabit, of course. But when we go to do our jobs, we, our obligations are more restricted, if you will. For instance, in my case, my daily obligations are how to teach students, how to improve my classes, uh, how to improve my own writing, uh, ultimately contributing to our social condition, our, our, our worldly condition, Uh, But the immediate goal is is different, right? Whereas in my research, I became fascinated by these individuals whose everyday job is to think about the form of the social in the context, for my case, of water relations. So the people that I worked with um, get up in the morning to do that job, uh, to shape collective life, and specifically... They work in regulatory agencies. They lead technical NGOs that work for uh, environmental issues on environmental law. They are Congress representatives. They are economists working in a uh, responsible for calculating uh, prices and and those kinds of things. They have different professional backgrounds. Like I said, they are economists, lawyers engineers, but there are also farmers and volunteers in community aqueduct associations. So this is not just a matter of of experts as defined by a Western uh, understanding of, of knowledge and, and professions. It's it's people that have technical knowledge about water questions, which might come from having a particular degree or from their daily activities in a community aqueduct association, for example. So I consider all of them experts, and I worked with them in a variety of locations. In their offices, we did field trips together. Uh, I attended community meetings. We uh, ran Skype meetings over the internet. I attended workshops that they were a part of or they were imparting. So the project really occupied a variety of spaces, the fieldwork that was necessary. Um, was really disseminated uh, uh, along many, many sites. And the reason for that, it's because the difference that I was really trying to to chart how it was produced was being produced in a variety of places. Uh, and so the places where the distinction was being created were diverse. They were uh, a variety of them. But importantly, uh, one of the things that I learned very quickly as I was doing this work is that the decisions or the distinctions that my interlocutors were making were not framed as radical transformations. On the contrary, what they were interested in was using the tools that they had at hand to create a separation or a difference that they would that they knew would not be permanent but would require continuous work to be kept alive to put it differently the idea of distinguishing water access as a human right from water access as a commodified good or service was one that could not be pinpointed to a single place and a single decision but had to be constantly be recreated because the moment that you created you established a relation with uh, a human right, you are always also establishing a relationship with a commodity. And let me give you an example to make this more concrete. The moment in which a set of regulators decide that in order for water access to remain a human right, the price of water cannot be, cannot in, be increased by more than X percent, the moment that they make that decision, they are pushed again in the next moment to reconsider whether that decision is one that allows utilities to collect enough resources to renew their infrastructures and get waters to new water to new locations. And at that next decision, uh, again, the struggle is present. How do you make this price reflect the idea that water should be a human right and not a commodity? And, and technically, if, if you will, Saying that water is a human right entails a variety of, of characteristics that were formally defined in the U, in the UN General Assembly. But one of those is the idea of accessibility uh, and affordability. And so defining what is affordable water is a decision that has to be constantly made in time, one time, again, 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 again. And so it is in the in that Uh, relentless need to reassert a distinction that uh, I found uh, their work to be extremely generative, extremely complicated, but also uh, opening the potential for transformation while using the tools and resources that exist in the world at the moment. So as an anthropologist, I I do not look at their work as a series of narrow technicalities. So those decisions that I was describing, I don't understand them as narrow technicalities devoid of of, uh, passions, affects, histories, doubts, to the contrary. Uh, I am am moved also to understand the work that these experts do by pausing any cynical reading that claims to know in advance what their work is about. In other words, I think it would be very limited to say, oh, all of these decisions are all about corruption, or they're all about technocratic bureaucratization, uh, or they're all about defending particular class interests. Uh, I am more interested in in understanding their work in complex ways. That is, attending to their aspirations for ethical action and seeing how those aspirations are intertwined with historical legacies that make some choices possible and some impossible. And how within this context, uh, these actors, they still push to get most of, most, uh, of what they can from the possibilities and the and the tools that they have at hand. Another way to put this is to say that for my interlocutors, no action is an impossibility. They have to take action. They have to, t- to make decisions. And those are often not uh, uh, endless choices. There are limited choices that are possible. And so how is it that they ethically relate um, to those possibilities? And so to... to round up my idea here, in the book I speak of this condition as engaging with the world as it is, but differently. And this is in conversation with a lot of, uh, of the fascinating literature uh, around multiple worlds and around uh, ontological multiplicity or uh, activist ideas that, uh, should, that uh, propose that other worlds are possible. Uh, I'm not saying that I disagree with those. What I'm saying is that for my interlocutors, that is not an option. They live and work in a world that can be only uh, the world that is, and yet they're trying to make a difference uh, in that world. And so what I, what, with this, what I mean is that these are experts that understand their world as being structured by certain foundations that are unchangeable, such as the liberal state the role of economic valuation in social life, the legacy of human rights as a Euro-American invention. But yet, despite this seeming fixity, they are still committed to making decisions that can create change in the world. Uh, So I'm interested in this group of people as a complement to theories of political change that focus on... uh, social movements or revolutionary groups who are, who are working for wholesome change. Uh, in my book, my point is to understand uh, what might seem the unloved groups of, of political change in the history of, of Latin America.
0: In the introduction, you present the book as a curatorial work that collects odd technocratic devices. The device is a concept that guides your thinking, but also structures the book. But what is a device here? How do you arrive at the device in your ethnographic project?
1: So I'll, I'll begin with, with, with that part, uh, with the question of how did you uh, arrive at the devices? Because uh, this is c- crucial for... Uh, the design of the book for my own thinking, but also in terms of anthropological knowledge production. So when I designed this project, originally my question was how is it that the distinction between a human right and a commodity is produced in relation to water. And I had this anticipation that I was going to ask this question to my interlocutors and I I was going to have all of these conversations about, you know, moral philosophy, if you will, or what were the values behind um, their, their ideas or what were the things that, that mattered mostly to them, uh, almost uh, identifying the moral economy that was underlying the possibility of this distinction. But when I started doing fieldwork, something else happened. Uh, as I asked this question to them, I was immediately taken to the challenges of very specific technical decisions. So one example, for instance, when I was doing uh, fieldwork with a community aqueduct association on the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica, and we were talking about the challenges that they were facing to make uh, water accessible to everybody in the community, they said, you know, we understand very well what are the, the challenges that we have here in terms of infrastructure, in terms of the um, financial limitations of our neighbours, in terms of the relationships of uh, uh, responsibility for the lives of each other, the relations of care for each other. But what what we are really curious about and what really is important and shapes so many of the decisions that we make here is how is the price of water that we charge our neighbors set and who designs it and who uh, calculates it. And so they immediately sent me, uh, if if you will, to work and think and, and do more research with the regulatory agencies that were making these decisions. And when I asked those people, what is it, that it means to treat water access as a human right, they immediately took me to the particular formula that they were using to calculate the price. And so the device is something that I, I found uh, through my interlocutors rather than something that I predefined as the object of study in, in this project. And it was this remaining open to the preoccupations of my interlocutors, what allowed me to, uh, to travel, to, to trace and chase this object of study, uh, even if I had not designed the project to, with, with the particular figure of the device. So as, as I conducted more fieldwork and I posed these questions to the NGOs and the community organizations and the experts, uh, in government agencies that I was talking to, they were all pushing me to these particular technical uh, tools slash instruments. And uh, by thinking with them and by charting the spe- their specific contents, I became uh, interested in this idea of of a device. And so. These devices uh, became the organizing uh, logic of the book. Uh, each of the book, each of the chapters, excuse me, uh, is organized around one device. The first chapter looks at formula, which uh, traces the ways in which regulators uh, calculate and understand the different variables in the in the formula they use to set the price of water because these regulators are the ones that set the price for all of the utilities. All of the water utilities are public in Costa Rica. And so in this chapter, I'm interested in the question of profits, which is one that is at the core of the meaning of uh, a human right to water. For a lot of people, or for most people in Costa Rica, uh, it's not unreasonable to think that you have to pay for water as it is in other parts of the world. But what people really reject is the idea that companies will profit from water services. And so in tracing the pricing formula, it became crucial to understand how is it that regulators contained or limited the notion of profits, both as a way to implement a legal principle that is uh, in, in, that orients their work, the, the principle of servicio al costo, which means service for uh, for the cost, which in other words, it's uh, the prohibition from prohi- uh, from profiting from water services. How is it that in the everyday specific people with their own political ideals, with their own ethic ethics, with their own uh, party uh, allegiances, how is it that they translated that uh, prohibition into calculations that determined what the price is and how that price is charged to millions and millions of people in Costa Rica. So I found the device as this particular juncture where a lot of energy is channeled so that these differences can have effects in the world. The second uh, device I uh, investigate is index. Another of the allegations that... uh, regulators have is to update the price of water according to inflation. And inflation is calculated uh, using something that's called the consumer price index. And this is the case in most uh, capitalist countries, if not all. This is one of those foundational principles in economic um, practice and in economic theory. So in this chapter, I trace the ways in which People from uh, the Statistics uh, and Census Institute in Costa Rica collect information to produce the Consumer Price Index, which then has a life as a critical factor in the updating of the price of water. And what is amazingly interesting is how the conceptions of a household and a citizen change throughout history in connection to the consumer price index. So in this chapter, I show how that historical transformation and how households went uh, from being understood as, in terms of citizens, in terms of workers, to lately being transformed into statistical abstractions where it really doesn't matter who is there or what humans inhabit the household. What matters is the aggregation of statistical information about their consumption practices. That is, whether you buy uh, one package of of toilet paper or five packages, whether you buy one liter of milk or 15 liters of milk, whether you buy uh, massage services or whether you pay for English lessons, all of these things are aggregated into this statistical account. That has very profound impact on the price of water. And yet you wouldn't think uh, from the get-go that it does. So that's the second chapter that looks at the index through which the consumption practices of households are connected to uh, the price of water and whether it it can be considered a human right according to UN uh, prescriptions that say that no household should pay or should devote more than 3% of their income. To pay for water so the third chapter uh, is list and this is a chapter that traces discussions in costa rica over the constitutional reform that uh, activists and ngos were pushing for for many many years since 2002 to be specific and in this chapter i document this incredible list which is basically a water taxonomy that was constructed by the Libertarian Party, a party that was that opposed throughout its whole existence, the party doesn't exist anymore, but throughout the many, many years that they spent in Congress, they opposed the constitutional reform to recognize water as a human right and a public good. Um, in this case, the idea of a human right was intimately tied with the idea of a public good and the constitutional reform was going to in- include both concepts in the in article 50 of the foundational text. In this uh, chapter what I examine is how this list has this uncanny effect of opening up the material uh, form of water by uh, tactically uh, interrupting the vote the vote of the project, but at the same time creating this amazing taxonomy of water forms. So when they were opposing the project in their own speeches, the libertarians were listing all cynically uh, all of the forms of water that would become state property if the reform passed. And this is the language that they used. And so there were hours and hours of speeches saying um, you know, if this reform would pass, the ocean would become state property, clouds would become state property, ice cubes would become straight, state property. And they even said in one of their speeches, if this reform is passed, 70% of the human body would be state property because uh, 70% of our bodies are water. Now, you can very uh, you can dismiss this. nothing more than obstructionism and and an uninteresting uh, maneuver. But what I found uh, puzzling is how this device, this list, in a way uh, asserted something that activists and critical scholars had been saying for a long time, which is that the materiality of water is multiple. There are multiple waters that water tends to change form and reshape itself um, in connection to other parts of, of the physical world, gravity, uh, biological beings, non-organic beings, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so it was very disorienting to see this idea of the multiplicity of the materiality of water being mobilized by those that were opposing uh, the, the recognition of water access the, as a human right and a public good. And that created a really important uh, moment for me as an anthropologist to think, how do we make sense of this when the people that we disagree with politically are in fact uh, proposing uh, and using interesting ideas to advance their their political objectives. So that was uh, the, the the chapter on list, chapter three. And the fourth um, chapter is the chapter on pact. And this, uh, this chapter is concerned with the question of how how do how are obligations created when the law is recognized as incapable of creating obligations and so in this pact in this chapter excuse me i take the readers to northeast brazil to follow this incredible project um that brought together thousands and thousands of people to uh make promises to each other about how to care for water in their immediate context and without any external resources. So that this device, in a way, could be dismissed as, as just another form of government, government at a distance, dismantling of the obligations of the state, and so on and so forth. And yet what was happening was uh, something very interesting in terms of the scalar obligations that were being created and how these obligations included state actors, not only uh, civil society. Now, to round up uh, the concept of of the device, I will just say that I see each of these technical devices as, uh, on the one hand, improvisational spaces, that is spaces that allow people to invent and reinvent their political practices. And at the same time, they are channels for long-standing histories uh, and ideas uh, that shape our societies, such as the legacy of liberalism, the impact of capitalism in determining uh, the distribution of wealth in society, the relation between needs and money, the change in value on money of money in capitalist societies, uh, the possibility of using the law to create obligations, uh, and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, we have improvisational spaces to reinvent but on, at the same time we have the channeling of long-standing ideas that shape our societies they also occupy the energy of many many people and not once but constantly so that's why i find them really interesting uh, sites for critical uh observation and, and analysis of, of our worlds and these devices have an incredible impact In the everyday lives of a lot of people, even if they go unacknowledged, just just imagine uh, all of us get water bills, or most of us get water bills. And those who are not connected to formal infrastructures uh, often also get their own water bills, just not coming from the same state agencies. So these devices are uh, really interesting ways to understand how social life takes form and they also allows us to bypass what I see is a, a problematic dichotomy that in a lot of anthropology or maybe even other social sciences still prevails. And that, that dichotomy is the dichotomy between the intimate and the structural, or the micro and the macro. And I was really interested in finding an ethnographic point of entry that sidestepped that dichotomy. Mm. Like finding a way to understand. Both the intimate and the structural, as they are uh, shaped uh, together and in in just single sets of practices, uh, and what I mean by what I mean by that is that a particular practice is both structural and intimate. And I was really interested in those um, those sites for anthropological attention.
0: So uh, the title of the book it's. A future history of water. I, I personally much like how in the book you are approaching to temporality and the future's non-imaginable dimensions, as you suggest throughout the book and in this interview. Your collaborators think and act through what you refer as a future anterior, an upcoming moment that is not predictable from what we know, uh, but it's a future that is full of surprises. What were some of the surprises that you encountered during your fieldwork?
1: So the, the question of temporality is, a, is a, f- a fantastic one and a puzzling one for for so many of us, right? Um, so in relation to those who are committed to change in history, uh, the particular group of people that I'm uh, working with, uh, their relation to time is, is crucial as they're trying to change the worlds they inhabit. Um, so the question that follows is, how do you know when change has happened? Um, now, we have learned from many authors, particularly from Trujillo, for instance, how the unthinkable underlies so much of our reflections on historical change. How, in, in, in their case, how something as magnificent as the Haitian Revolution went unnoticed as it was unfolding, and later it was silenced as an impossibility. So my work shares a similar preoccupation, although not one with a magnificent, magnificent revolutionary moment as the Haitian Revolution, but a, a different set of moments. Uh, so I ask in the book, what are the historically significant changes that are gestating at the moment but cannot be diagnosed as such? And in that sense, bring about surprises. And my interlocutors are constantly engaging in this work of of creating the preconditions for something that might unleash in the future. That is making choices that set conditions in motion for something else to emerge. Now, it's interesting for me that despite... Uh, a lot of conversation that has happened about features, um, in my conversations, my collaborators, they, were, they did not organize their work around a particular vision of the future. Uh, rather, uh, they were interested in how to create preconditions uh, that would yield to something that is unknown and can only be known in the future as new things happen. In other words, for them, the surprise is in the future, not in the present. Because their task in the present is one to mobilizing and working with the tools, the devices that they have that are somewhat known, but you want to activate their capacity to yield something that is unknown in the yet to come and my interest in this in this form of temporality is purely political uh as a as a commit, form of commitment to the politics of the present even if the present uh even if at the present or in the present the world seems to 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 block the possibilities for change or particular decisions seem to never be effective and so in the, in the work that my interlocutors do, they're always facing the constraints of the impossible or the constraints of having at hand tools that are limited and making decisions that they doubt whether they will have any effects. And nevertheless, they still commit in the everyday to activating the possibilities within uh, those instruments. So this is not... Um, uh, naive utopianism if anything it's the opposite it's a stark, stark realism about the limitations of acting in the present and going through those limitations uh, and embracing them rather than uh, assuming that what they do is block the possibility of the unexpected arriving and like i said valuing and embracing this form of politics uh, is something that was really important uh, for them and something that I learned a lot uh, uh, about by doing this work and by taking our vision and our imagination beyond the spectacular future that we anticipate or wish would unfold and into the boring desk work if you will, the boring sets of small decisions that are necessary for uh, the unexpected to arrive or to emerge. And so the book, what tries, what I try to do is to uh, dislocate the idea of a surprise from an event in the future to the quotidian and honestly, in some cases, boring decisions that people have to make in the present, and to revalue and embrace and celebrate the commitments that people are making in their everyday world, works and worlds uh, to yield or to create or set preconditions for surprise to emerge later on. Uh, and so it's a it's an invitation to revalue this kind of political work and its potential. Uh, to change the world that we live in, um, but at the same time, to remind us that what we recognize what we recognize as a surprise or uh, as a transformative event in the present is something that that depends on the preconditions that were set for it in the past in a series of small changes that at the moment uh, might have seemed. Uh, ineffective or or very limited. And so the future, the idea of a future history is precisely this invitation to attend to future histories in the making, to those things that only uh, will be recognized as meaningful and significant later on, but nevertheless, we need to commit to in the present so that that transformative potential can be unleashed.
0: Andrea, after a future history of water, what new projects have you been working on?
1: I'm engaged in in, in two projects at the moment. One is uh, a book that will come out next year. It's an edited collection that is called Experimenting with Ethnography, a companion to analysis, which uh, brings together an outstanding group of contributors um, to develop an idea that I developed with my co-author, Brit Ross Winterick from ITU Copenhagen in Denmark, uh, which is the idea that analysis, ethnographic analysis, tends to be understood in two ways. Either as serendipity, like something that happens by luck, something that you do as you write, but it's not very systematic. Or on the other hand, as a highly systematized and almost mechanic set of procedures, things that many of us in anthropology would find uh, tend to flatten uh, the possibilities of the ethnographic encounters that we are part of. In response to that, we convened a group of, of colleagues to develop this idea of a series of creative and experimental protocols for an ethnographic analysis, and so the book has uh, more than twenty chapters of uh, that include very precise and concrete ideas of how you can unleash forms of ethnographic analysis that remain open to the creative potential of. Uh, ethnographic work but at the same time that are grounded in concrete steps or concrete questions that we could add and so the book is going to be available in the spring of 2021 and it'll be open access as well we're really hoping that it can circulate broadly and it can be a companion a companion to both students but also uh Ethnographers that have more experience and that have conducted uh, a number of, of projects already, and it's it's it intends to offer a different take on what analysis might be, that recognizes both the creativity and the experimental potential, but also that doesn't black box the moment of analysis as something that that we don't. Discuss or or conceptualize or theorize, and the uh, the idea is for the book to be highly practical. Uh, so a book that you can pick up at any moment and say, "Oh, I have all of these materials, but I'm kind of not sure about how to start uh, telling the story that I can that I could or one of the stories that that emerges from this material." Let me use this protocol uh, to poke the material, if you will, and to poke myself to find new routes for analysis and maybe unexpected thoughts or unexpected insights. So I'm very excited about this project. It's a collaborative project that has an amazing set of contributors, and we're looking forward to launching the book uh, in next the next uh, year. We're going to have a, a companion uh, website where you can also download uh, the chapters and get more information from the authors and so on and so forth. The second project I'm working on, it's a a research project on aquifers as spatial imaginaries. I have been working with hydrogeologists in local communities in Costa Rica that are redefining their relations with subterranean space. And I'm fascinated by the figure of the aquifer as this um, formation that is both water and stone at one, at once. Uh, this formation that is movement, uh, this formation that is very difficult to scientifically trace and, and track, uh, and yet it's becoming more and more present in the way in which we live our lives uh, because of the world water crisis, but also because of the ways in which our relationships with land uh, and uh, other beings are, are changing. Uh, both for the good and the better. Mm. They are being impacted by capitalist forms of consumption and uh, economic organization. And yet at the same time, the the limits of our imagination for our relations with subterranean spaces are changing. They are expanding. And so I'm really interested in how this uh, reshapes a number of things. Among them, the meaning of private property. Mm. How does that expand or contract as we consider subterranean spaces uh, that are not associated to mining endeavors or to other forms of oil extraction or those kinds of things, but that are, that are associated uh, to water. And the other thing that I'm really interested in is how this new spatial imaginary redistributes obligations to care among uh, government officials and, and local actors in Costa Rica. So... I'm in the process of doing that research, which has been fascinating. I've been looking at uh, remote sensing technologies and how they, um, they, they create a form of touching with light. And so I, I published an, uh, an article about that last year that's called exactly that, touching with light. Uh, and in, that, in there, I think about how texture and remote sensing come together to uh, invite people, to think and sense uh, subterranean spaces differently. And I've been also playing with the idea of uh, how aquifers challenge ideas of figures and grounds and how they problematize the idea of uh, switching from figure to ground when you don't really know what is the ground and what, what is the figure in the case of an aquifer. It's not so easy to separate them. So this is, I'm I'm taking a more spatial orientation in this project, and I will be doing more fieldwork in the coming months and hopefully uh, writing a book on this in the next year or so.
0: Both projects sound fantastic. Thanks again, Andrea, for joining me today. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to today's episode in which we talked to Dr. Andrea Ballesteros about her book, A Future History of Water published by Duke University Press in 2019. This is your host, Alejandro Ponce de León. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in Environmental Studies.